The following sermon is from Matt Chapman, guest preacher and deacon at Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Matt Chapman. Well, good morning. So I'm so excited to be here today, Uh, so excited to the point that last night I could not sleep, literally. I woke up at 3.30 this morning and I have not slept since. So, but thankfully uh, the Lord is good and can work through even a tired body. (laughs) And a little coffee never hurts either. But um, our main text, it's actually 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, but I, I really actually appreciate the reading of this entire passage because it begins... Paul's application for everything that he's been talking about in the first three chapters. But before we look at um, verses six through eight, if you could just turn with me to James chapter four, verses 13 through 15, and that'll kind of set the tone for where we're going to go today. So James four, 13 through 15. There in 13, it says, "'Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So as time goes on, I've come to recognize just how uh, out of control our lives can be sometimes. Uh, certainly coronavirus this past year has thrown us all for a loop, and certainly we have little control over that. We've also had little control over uh, the pipeline this past week, sending everyone to the gas station, plastic bags, plastic containers, to go pick up gas to ride this out, which thankfully I think it'll be fine by tomorrow or if it's not already. Um, so, but with this idea in mind, I want us to look just briefly at James 4 to show what our life is. It's not up to us. It's not our will. It's ultimately the Lord's will, and he is in control. There in verse 14 it says, "'Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring.'" We have no idea, we have no control over that situation, but the Lord does. Continuing, it says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Can you see the uncertainty of that situation, even the the brevity of it? Our life is just a a mist, it's a vapor, just a puff of wind can blow it away. Now, you may ask, well, Matt, why would you start this loving song of of our death, essentially is what I'm talking about, that we have no control. We know that our life will end. Why would you remind us of that? Well, clearly, um, God's word does not pull any punches in truth. And I want us to look clearly that our time on this earth will come to an end. But the question is, how are we going to meet that end. Will we meet it with security, with hope, with conviction of what is to come, or will we have worries and concerns, uh, uncertainty of what is to come, 
or fear. I want us to be prepared and ready for that day because it is coming. Now, let's look at some, let's just listen to some uh, quotes from some individuals before they passed away to make us even more grieve, grieving <laughs> is what can come. So, Sir Isaac Newton said this, I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have only been like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then and finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Leonardo da Vinci would say this, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Gandhi said this, my days are numbered. I'm not likely to live very long, perhaps a year or a little more. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in a slough of despond. All about me is darkness. I am praying for light. It's not an encouraging sight, is it? We see goals not reached. We see truth and purpose undefined. Sir Isaac Newton, one of the smartest guys around in his day, continually diverted when all the truth around him wasn't discovered. Leonardo da Vinci, my work did not reach the quality it should have, the regret, the sense of his worth not reaching what it should have, had, what it should have been. And then yeah, Gandhi, all about me is darkness, hopelessness. I don't want to end my life like that, do you? So how do we meet our end well? How do we finish well? How do we live our lives in the present so at the end of it we can approach it with readiness and certainty? Today we're going to look at some of Paul's words to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. through 8. And we're going to see his life poured out almost on a tombstone. He looks at it from the present, he looks at it from the past, and he looks forward to the future. And we're going to see that Paul finished well because he had lived a life of sacrifice for Christ. That's our first point. He had lived um, with an enduring faith in Christ, and he lived with an eternal hope in Christ. So if you want to flip over to verses uh, to 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, um, we'll get to that in just a second. But it's important to understand some of the context surrounding 2 Timothy before we delve any deeper. 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy uh, while he's in a Roman prison. It would not be his first time that he has uh, been in prison for the faith, but it would ultimately be his last. Um, he knows that his end is near. Uh, as he is in prison, he knows that he's going to be executed soon. So all of 2 Timothy is devoted to passing the torch of ministry from Paul to Timothy. Someone has to continue the charge. And actually, even though it was a mistake, it was great that we read verses 1 through 5 before this. Because I charge you, I beseech you to preach the word. That is the application of everything that Paul's been building up to this point. So as he's encouraging Timothy in so many ways to, to live unashamedly for the gospel, to keep strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, to continually pursue him and to live out your ministry, perhaps the greatest um, 
encouragement they could have had is in verses six through eight. It's essentially to say, I know where I'm going and it's gonna be fine. It's gonna be okay. So now let's finally look at verse six and we'll see our first point. In uh, verse six, we're gonna see that Paul finished well because he had lived a life of sacrifice for Christ. Let's read verse six again. It says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. So what do we see? This first verse in verse six, like I said, he goes from looking at the present to the past and then to the future. Here he looks at the present. And in that moment, anybody in their last moments, you're gonna see what's really in their hearts. You're gonna see the, if there's fear or discouragement or anything, the truth is gonna come laid out. But what do we see from Paul? We see no negativity, just readiness for what is to come. The current state that he is in is not discouraging, but there's just acceptance of his death. Now, looking, continuing to look at verse six, we're gonna see just that first statement there, for I, for I. Now, I promise I'm not gonna take every part of this verse word for word, but just to kind of walk through how we're, how we're moving through this chapter, through this verse. For I, so I've already explained that Timothy is being charged by Paul to preach the word faithfully. And there's two reasons for that, because in, uh, in verse three, I believe it is, um, the world will come to a place that it will no longer accept sound teaching. So preach the word while you can. Preach the word that the world so desperately needs to hear. But then in verse six, the second reason he should preach the word is because he's about to die soon. Paul's about to go on to be with the Lord. So preach the word faithfully for I am being poured out as a drink offering. So now let's get into the, the, the meat of this verse so for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Now the most obvious question is, what is a drink offering and why is that important? Why does Paul see his life as this offering? Well, very quickly, we're not gonna go into heavy detail, but if you were to look back at Numbers 15, it describes very clearly all the sacrifices and offerings that God's people used to do. Because before Jesus Christ gave his life for us as the ultimate sacrifice, God's people had to give sacrifices for where they had disobeyed God. There in Numbers 15, it describes multiple uh, types of uh, sacrifices, talking about um, sacrifices of animals, uh, grain offerings, and then finally this drink offering. Now, two important details about the drink offering. Thing number one, the drink offering was always last. The other ones would always be done first, and this was kind of the, the finishing statement, if you will. The, the wine would be poured out on the altar, and that's really all there was to it. But with that in mind, we can start kind of applying this back to verse six, back in 2 Timothy. Paul sees his life as that drink offering. Because his final act in this life is an offering of worship to the Lord and sacrifice of himself. It's almost as if he's saying, I'm pouring out my life for Christ. I'm literally pouring out my blood for him. But I want us to see that Paul's life was not 
just this one act of, of sacrifice. It's not like he threw himself into prison to become a martyr for the Lord to somehow earn favor with God. But no, his life was just one big sacrifice for the Lord. So let's look at another text. Let's look at something that might illustrate this a little better. In 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27, we're going to look there for a moment. We're going to see just some of the sacrifices that Paul made to the Lord and how he lived his life sacrificially. There, starting in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers." in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Look at some of the details of these verses. We won't completely break it down, but just look at some of the highlights, if you will. He was beaten, he was imprisoned, not just here <laughs> while he's writing this book, he's, uh, he was uh, imprisoned before beaten with rods. He was stoned, which he doesn't go into detail here, but when he was stoned, he was drugged out of the city because they thought he was dead, okay? Like, it wasn't just a few pebbles. No, he, they stoned him till they thought he was dead, dragged him out, and then he woke up, and most people would think this is a great time to go back and regroup. <laughs> no, Paul woke up and said, I'm going to go right back in there when they just stoned me. Okay, that's just, even just that one statement alone is to show that he was willing to do anything for Christ. He was willing to sacrifice himself to the utmost degree for Christ. So kind of bringing this all together, why could Paul uh, end his life with such calmness and certainty? Because he knew that he did not sacrifice himself in vain he knew that he had lived his life with ultimate purpose because Jesus Christ is worth it. There's no greater calling than to live for the Lord in all that we do. We should take up our cross daily and follow him, and Paul did that to every degree possible. Romans 8.18 would um, clearly show that Christ is worth every sacrifice. In verse 18 of Romans, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul hadn't given his life for nothing. He knew the only correct response to the gospel was to be a living sacrifice for Christ in Romans 12, to be the good soldier whose only aim is to please the recruiter in 2 Timothy 2. No, he had lived his life to the fullest, and he had given it all to the only one that matters. So beginning to look to the second half of verse 6, we're going to move through this a little quicker, or we would be here till three or four in the afternoon. Um, but looking at the latter half of verse six, and the time of my departure has come. He's given his life as an offering and uh, offering of worship and sacrifice to the Lord, and now it's time to go. I won't belabor the point, but 
This word departure has a few interesting meanings. It, means, it can mean to unyoke an animal from a plow or from a cart. I'm sure Paul was ready to unyoke his, um, himself from this life of burden and then join the Lord up, up in heaven. This word departure could also mean to loosen bonds or other bindings. I'm sure Paul was ready to be liberated from the prison that he was in and walk freely with the Lord. And one of the other meanings, there were several, but this is one of the other important ones. Departure could also mean to loosen the ropes on a tent, which I think is interesting because Paul's uh, profession was a tent maker. It's almost like he was loosening up the, the ropes on his tent in this life, and he's about to go set up with the Lord. So as Paul was coming to the end, he could rest easy knowing that he had sacrificially given himself for Christ, not in just that one moment, but throughout his life. Ever since he came to Jesus, it was just one big sacrifice, and he knew that Jesus was worth it. So, looking to verse 7, we'll see our next point. Verse 7, our point is, Paul finished well because he had an enduring faith in Christ. Paul finished well because he had an enduring faith in Christ. There in verse 7, it says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So we've seen how Paul's reflected in the moment in verse 6. Now we see him recount his past. And notice these verbs. It says, I have fought. I have finished. I have kept. He has done what he is supposed to do. The goal that he set out to achieve has been reached. There's nothing left hanging. There's nothing left, oh, I wish I would have done this. No, what he has set out to do has been done. Would we like to finish our lives like that? As we begin to unpack this verse, we will begin to see how these verses kind of, or how these phrases flow together. The first two verses, or sorry, the first two phrases I have fought the good fight and I have kept the faith, or sorry, I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race. These are metaphors that highlight that last phrase, I have kept the faith. Now this uh, language is not new or unoriginal. Um, Paul spoke of this earlier in 1 Timothy 6, 12. Timothy, he was encouraging him to fight the good fight of faith. So with this idea in mind, we can kind of understand this as a metaphor of what it's like to live out the faith. So let's look at these phrases one at a time, and that'll kind of help flow through this verse. So that first phrase, I have fought the good fight. If there's one thing that is evident about living for Christ faithfully, it's just how difficult it can be sometimes. I think sometimes we can set ourselves up for failure when, we, when someone new comes to Christ. And yes, our sin problem has been solved. Jesus Christ has sacrificed and given himself for us, but our calling to live on this earth is not an easy one. It is so, so difficult. We can become discouraged. Even though we have an eternal hope in Christ, sometimes our burden to bear can almost be too much. But one of the best ways that we can be prepared to fight the good fight is to just know that it's coming. Know that it's going to be there. Sometimes in America, it's way too easy almost to live out our faith. We have more freedom than we ever know, 
And yet, when we look at scripture, we know that living out the faith should be, should be difficult. So let it be no surprise, let there be no surprise that Paul paints this picture of living the faith, keeping the faith as a fight. Um, it's terrible to get shot on the battlefield. It's worse to not even know that you're in a battle or to get punched in the face when you don't even realize you're in a boxing match. So let's look at another place where Paul speaks of our uh, hardships and what um, he would speak plainly of hardships in 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 13, and that we should expect these hardships to come. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 13, it says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. You should probably underline that. Verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can underline that too. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, most of these verses are hard for us to take to heart. It's hard to wrap our head around and to really take in. But don't miss verse 11. Yes, we will have difficulty in this life, and if we desire to live a godly life, we will be persecuted. But look at the Lord's faithfulness at the end of verse 11. In all of these things and sufferings that Paul went through, all of them, uh, Paul was rescued by the Lord. It may be difficult to see, but the Lord is faithful to us, even though we can't always see it. We know that if he gave up his son, Jesus Christ, for us, what will he not give up for us? What will he not give us? The Lord doesn't just watch us suffer, but in his own time, he works through us. If we were to look at more places where we have hardship, we don't have time to look at these other things, but if you want to write down a couple verses for the road, here, here are a few. Ephesians 6.12 describes our battle with spiritual forces. Romans 7, 13 through 20 describes the battle with our own flesh. I do what I don't want to do. So we see that living this life of faith is a difficult one, but I should also point out that our fight is a good one as well. We won't spend much time here, but just know that living for Christ, we carry the message of truth to a broken world. Our, our fight is, is noble, it's worthy. Sometimes we can feel like we're wasting our life and sometimes in the heat of battle, we may forget why we're here, but know that as we've been called by Christ to carry the, the gospel wherever we go, know that it is worth every effort. We fight a hard fight, but we know it is a good one. And that's exactly what Paul did with his life while he took his lumps, he continued to fight the good fight of faith to the very end. But now let's finally look at the second phrase. We'll move through this one a little quicker. It says, I have finished the race. So we've seen Paul fight the good fight, and now he compares keeping the faith to running a race. Finishing a race takes persistence and longevity, self-discipline, and keeping your eye on the prize. 
All of these reasons are probably why I'm terrible at running in real life, okay? I will run in a straight line down a basketball court. I will not run a marathon ever, never, never. Even yesterday at a wedding that um, I was a groomsman in, me and my, the other groomsmen were all in our early 30s, and we commented on, wow, we're winded after doing the, uh, the Macarena. <laughs> okay? I will never, never run a marathon in real life, but we are called to run a marathon when we are running for Christ. I th- <laughs> um, but it takes perspective. It takes keeping your eye on the prize. It keeps knowing where you're going to end up, not where you are in the moment. Because in the moment, my lungs are burning, my knees are falling apart, my back aches. When we live for Christ, yes, there's, there's struggle and there's uh, difficulty, but we have to look to Jesus and who he is and why we're running to begin with. Philippians 3, 13 through 14, it shows where Paul had this Christ-like perspective. In verse 13, it says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was able to run the race and stay persistently to the end because he kept his eyes on Christ and only running for him. So now we've seen these metaphors. We've seen that running for Christ is, is, takes persistence. Um, living for Christ is difficult, but we're gonna see what is it to keep the faith. That last statement, that last phrase, Paul has kept the faith, I have kept the faith. When we look at the word for kept in the Greek, it is the word tereo, which means watching over, heeding or preserving. But it's important to note that Paul didn't just keep his faith. A lot of times when we're talking about ourselves, obviously we want to make sure we stay and keep to the end, but Paul said he has kept the faith. Certainly Paul still believed in the Lord. He took the Lord at his word, but what does it mean that he kept the faith? Paul saw himself as a holder of the truth, burdened to preserve and guard the gospel to his last breath. Paul saw himself as a holder of the truth, burdened to preserve and guard the gospel to his last breath. Another commentator would put it this way, Paul is thinking of the gospel as the precious deposit that was entrusted to him. Amid the countless dangers encountered from active foes and false friends, he has unflinchingly held to that gospel and has guarded it against perversion and adulteration. When Paul came to faith in Christ, his life was irrevocably changed. His purpose was completely redefined. Now he only aims to proclaim Christ wherever he goes. He would preserve the gospel by sharing it faithfully with others so that they would hear the gospel. Because Paul, as we've already talked about, his, his life is coming to an end. Our impact on this earth is only for a little while, but he could preserve the gospel by sharing it faithfully with others so that it would live on in them. But he didn't just help preserve the gospel, he also guarded the gospel. Throughout scripture, there's multiple places where there are false teachers, people who would teach things that are against Christ. 
Paul would publicly refute and argue. He would write many letters to churches that were confused, that would later, many of them would be recognized as scripture. So through every pain and struggle, Paul kept the faith by faithfully proclaiming Christ to the very end, because that was his life. He left nothing undone, nothing hanging around. So when death was close, Paul could reflect on his life and see that he had indeed met the goal. His mission, Colossians 1, 28 through 29, kind of illustrates this well. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Warning everyone, teaching everyone, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That was Paul's goal. And he lived it out to the very, very end. So now, looking at the final verse, verse 8. Paul finished well because he had an eternal hope in Christ. He finished well because he had an eternal hope in Christ. There in verse 8, it says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul has looked at his life from the present, He's looked at it from the past and what he has done. Now we see him look to the future, that hope, that security that he now has. He's run the race of faith well, and now there's a prize to be given that is in Christ. But notice the themes in verse 8 of security and certainty. There's no fogginess of what is to come. He is absolutely certain that this prize is coming in Christ. There's uh, no depression. There's no uncertainty. It's only that Jesus is coming. But we look at this idea of this laid-up hope that he has that in the coming Christ. So Matthew 6.20 would kind of comes to mind, and we put it this way. It says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Paul has not placed his hope in something that can be lost or ruined or stolen. He's placed his faith and his hope fully in Jesus Christ. Nothing can ever undo the gospel. That truth that has been done through Jesus Christ can never be undone. We can never be snatched out of his hand or we can never be overpowered by Satan. We have Jesus Christ and that can never be undone. But looking beyond just this laid up place, this in a safe spot, this hope, we will look at the crown of righteousness. It says, uh, quickly moving through, let's look at this crown of righteousness. As Paul's finished the race, it's only fitting that he receives the prize. Now the word for crown gives the idea of almost like a wreath that you would wear on your head. If you've ever seen Ben-Hur after the chariot race, after he wins, 
That's kind of what's placed on his head. Or if you've ran a race back in the day, if you were in the Olympics, you would have um, just run, you would have won this little wreath um, that you would wear. Now, what I think is hilarious is that if I'm going to run, if I'm going to compete, I want a lot more than just this little wreath crown on my head. <laughs> Especially if you got me to run. As we've seen, that, that's impressive if you can make me do that. But, and not only is this, you know, we can see the idea of how this wreath or this crown can just shrivel up over time. It's certainly not permanent. Certainly no one would remember it. It's not like you can take this and show it to your kids later. It is only here for a little time and then it's going to die. <laughs> So no one would even know that you won this competition or whatever it is. So I want us to see then that this crown of righteousness that we receive from Christ, that it never passes away. As we live on this earth, when we come to saving faith in Christ, we, li- we live in this tension of already but not yet. Christ has imputed his righteousness to us, and we have the seal of the Spirit, but we live in a world that is broken and alienated from Christ in which we are only sojourners. We're only passing through as we were intended and created to be in perfect harmony and worship of Jesus Christ. Our crown of righteousness is when the not yet becomes the now. It's when Christ's righteousness becomes fully realized when we are no longer separated from Christ. We will wear a crown that shows that we are forever His. It is given by the Lord Himself, the righteous judge, who can bring a word against God's elect when God Himself has justified us, when He gave up His own Son for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no condemnation. It is done. It is finished. We are his. But as we look at verse 8 and as it continues, we see that we'll be given the crown of righteousness by Christ, by the righteous judge. And thankfully, it's not only to Paul, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. My question to you is, do you have that hope in Christ? Is Christ your treasure? Is he your life? When people look at you, do they see Jesus? Have you placed your faith in him? If you are a believer, are you continuing to run that race? And that is my encouragement to you, is that if you are a believer... Don't give up. Don't grow weary in doing good. Keep doing the good that you know to do. Persist in Christ because we've seen that he is worth it. Paul is able to meet his end well and he's able to finish well because he sacrificed, had faith in, and hoped in Christ. Is that you? And if you haven't placed your faith in Christ and your hope in him, know that that is the only way that you will finish well. There is no hope if you don't have Christ. Consider your life. What will your epitaph be? Like I said, we can't control if we will die or not. We all know that we will, but what will your life be? What will your legacy be? And is it Christ? 
Thankfully, we're still here, and our end isn't here yet, but it's coming. Are you ready? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. I'm thankful for the, the spirit that works in this moment, Lord, that it's not up to me. Lord, thank you for this time together that we can study your word. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that doesn't have hope in Christ. I pray that you would continue to work in their hearts. And Lord, for those of us that, are, that might be discouraged or struggling in our faith, who might be struggling to run that race, Lord, I pray that you would give our hearts vigor to pursue you in all that we do. Lord, I ask these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Matt Chapman. For more messages and information, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.